This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Welcome to Critical Thinking and Critical Issues. Today, we're going to be discussing Private Markets 2023 considerations. Um, this is a publication we've put out annually for the last eight or 10 years in, in various forms. Today, I'm joined on, I'm Billy Charlton, the host of the, the podcast today. I'm joined by uh, David Scopelidi, that will cover private debt, and Amrick Yubi, who will cover infrastructure for us. The main idea behind this piece, uh, some of you may be familiar with the quarterly alternative report that we put out, obviously quarterly, hence the name. Uh, in that report, we generally cover market conditions, but due to the lag in private market uh, data availability, that's usually about two to three months after the end of the quarter that we get that information out. It provides valuable recent historical analysis but is limited what can talk about how current markets are, are behaving. So the idea behind the considerations piece is that we're looking at current and developing market conditions, and we tend to ask everyone to focus on one or two critical issues. Uh, so this the, the general idea here is what are GPs, LPs, conference topics? You know, what, what are the popular ideas that people are really concerned about? What, do you, what is the first question everyone asks at the, the conference tables? Obviously, this year, one of the major themes, and we'll see how it plays out across a number of different sectors, is inflation. We haven't seen inflation like this in 40 years. There are some sectors that benefit from it, some that are more challenged by it. So we will be discussing how that affects different sectors. And we have today private debt and infrastructure, which are particularly relevant to inflation environments. So in this, in, in the considerations, we, we cover nine different areas. The first one's private debt. Um, I'm, I'm going to skip over that area because David here will go into much more detail than the summary will provide. Uh, second one's private equity. And in that one, one of the big concerns we're seeing from clients is the, the, the issue of whether private equity fund managers are going to call capital down at a time when the allocations have increased quite a bit just because of the decline in, in public markets. Uh, so we look at we'll, we look at the history there to find out if, if that is something that private equity fund managers do. Real estate is another area where inflation is a prominent issue. Uh, but however, our real estate team makes the point here that it affects different sectors within real estate. Um, and that varies quite a bit. And it's important to keep that in mind. Venture capital is a very interesting piece. Um, it makes the case for the idea that it's less impacted by inflation but more impacted by crisis, but in a positive way. And the idea there is that a lot of the companies that we know today um, that are household names were started during a crisis or shortly after a crisis. So that talks about the history of some of those companies and, and doesn't make any projections about what companies are going to come out of this, but just makes the case that we, we may be seeing the development of companies that could fundamentally change how we live our lives in five to 10 years. Asian private equity section, the obvious thing you always have to talk about when you talk about Asian private equity is China. Given the size of the economy and the opportunities there, that's an important thing to, to look at and an important area to, to consider. 
And our Asian team talks about the opportunities that may have opened up uh, with all the recent changes in the, in the Chinese economy and Chinese structuring. European private equity, obviously a really challenging area right now due to the, the conflict in, in Eastern Europe, as well as the restrictions of the energy flow into that area. So even despite those problems, we're looking at the possibility that there may be, this may be an opportune time to get access to managers that you might not otherwise have access to. Infrastructure, again, I'll, I'll skip over that a little bit um, because Emmerich's uh, uh, here to talk about that. Uh, the eighth section is impact investing. That's another area that's really interesting and developed quite a bit in recent years. The demand side of that from the investor perspective is very large. And we're seeing, as most times you see happen in private markets, you see the supply come in to, to meet that demand. And we're seeing that with the development of impact uh, investing strategies. And then finally, hedge funds. Um, we're, we're looking at the rebalancing issues there and offering an alternative that may be particularly attractive given the current market conditions. So let's start off with David and private debt. David, in your section, you start off by talking about public market proxies to private equity or private sorry, private debt. And then you also present the idea that private debt might be a very attractive alternative to liquid credit markets. And then finally, you talk about the issue of flexibility in building out a private debt program. Can you give us a little more detail on that? Sure, there's, there's a lot in that question, uh, Billy. Uh, you know, certainly with the the public. That's my job is to to ask you good questions, right? So that's right, that's right. You know, if you look at what's happened in in the credit markets this year, um, obviously the public liquid credit markets they have been uh, upside upside down. Uh, obviously, as inflation has has um, has roared into the economies globally. Uh, particularly long-dated uh, uh, fixed income with duration uh, has fallen mightily. Um, as well, you know, with the Fed uh, and central banks tightening liquidity around the world, the, you know, the liquid credit markets, while functioning, are not functioning the way they were a year ago. And it's interesting because what has happened is, is the private credit market actually has come in um, to, to those markets, you know, traditional issuers who have gone to the broadly syndicated loan market or the high yield market uh, have actually come to the private credit market um, for capital uh, instead. Um, and that's really focused on you know, certainly uh, uh, certainty of closing uh, and being able to bilaterally negotiate a deal with a lender or a set of lenders um, and, and have that capital available for whatever the financing need might be uh, at any one uh, given time. But we've seen a I would tell you, a, I think a longer term shift uh, where issuers are going to go, be going to the private markets more and more rather than the, the public markets, just given the volatility there. Um, and it really, if you think about this, this is a very long term trend. Uh, I, I talk about this with clients all the time. Um, the, you know, particularly uh, after the great financial crisis um, and the, all the regulation regarding banks. The supply of capital from banks has really dwindled over, over the years. I mean, we're talking in the trillions of dollars. So the private capital markets, obviously, like everything else, have come in to fill that void. Um, so we've seen an evolution um, of, in private credit, both in terms of the supply of capital coming from other, other institutional investors, whether it be pension funds, insurance companies, endowment foundations, 
certainly retail investors now are in the um, in the game of, private, of providing capital um, to managers who can then invest in in the um, in the private debt market. So we've really seen a an incredible evolution, um, and I think you know it, it's hard even when you're going through it. Sometimes you don't realize it, but if you go you know point to point, the the private debt market now is a one point two trillion dollar market. Uh, up from you know 300 billion uh, just uh, right after the the great financial crisis. In, in your piece, you talk about the one of the attractive aspects of private debt being the floating rate aspect of it, and and in an inflationary environment, this is particularly attractive. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. You know, uh, I, I remember my uh, my first boss told me, uh, you know, one man's ceiling is another's floor, um, and and I'll. And, I, and if you think about that, um, for investors, um, obviously, rate, as inflation has surged, uh, so has interest rates, the, you know, the tool of many central bankers to combat inflation. So if you're an investor in private debt, you've been, you're enjoying um, an increase all in yield. I mean, there are portfolios out there that a year ago were generating six and a half percent. Now we're generating nine to 10 percent. As, and, and that's a reflection of the fact that interest rates have risen, one, and two, credit spreads have also widened. So, you know, for, for investors who are investing in the asset class, you get two for one. You get the, you know, the, the increase in rates, but also you get credit spreads as lenders, private lenders say, hey, listen, we're, we're entering into a very rocky time. Um, and the enhanced risk that companies are um, subject to, we need more compensation for that. And we've seen that shift, you know, really since the beginning of the year. You know, on the other side of it, um, if you're a company, I was at a CEO roundtable yesterday, companies are, you know, certainly reporting that this increase um, in rates and, in, and credit spreads as well is really sucking more cash flow out of their businesses. So what are what are CEOs doing? Well, at this roundtable, a number of different companies were talking about we're going to slow our growth in hiring, which obviously the Fed here in the in the US has been very focused on. Um, but also investment, um, whether that's investment in in property, plant, equipment, technology, um, with less cash flow available to uh, to make those types of investments, um, you know, they're really pulling back. So I think the central bankers, what they're doing uh, globally, um, you know, from a company standpoint, obviously has implications from an investor standpoint. It has a different set of impl- implications if you if you get my drift. Sure. Now, I, I thought, uh, it was interesting. I was on one, on one of our sessions from our Toronto GIF um, this week, and one of the, the, the groups made the argument that they thought that uh, companies may be more willing to hold on to employees longer now because it's so hard to hire, which I thought was a somewhat counterintuitive, but kind of an interesting, a very interesting point. No, certainly, uh, you know, from a from a hiring side, and this was one of the topics at the CEO roundtable uh, yesterday. Uh, I think you want to obviously keep your best employees. Um, it is a, it still is a very tight uh, labor market. Uh, COVID. Uh, clearly shifted um, uh, human capital around the around the globe, um, and I think in addition to COVID, we also have seen a move over the last you know ten years to the gig economy, um, where if if you're you have skills and talents, you can really bid those talents out 
uh, on a part-time or full-time basis to multiple organizations as opposed to just one. So, you know, that certainly the, the, the hunt for talent uh, continues. Um, and I think as, as we think about where we are right now, um, and particularly from a private debt standpoint, you know, the private debt market is growing. Um, and I, I can tell you that uh, managers, private debt managers, you know, continue to hire, um, broadly speaking, uh, as as the asset class continues to grow. So there's 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 a number of of uh, uh, shifting sands, if you will, depending on which which industry, which market you're in. Uh, but certainly, hiring is on the front of many many CEOs' minds these days. Perfect. And and in the issue of flexibility, can you discuss a little bit more where you think the existing clients or existing Participants in that market have done well, and where they need to, where would might have some more opportunity available for them. Absolutely, you know there are really two pieces to flexibility. Uh, flexibility is great, but you also have to have diversification. Those are really uh, two very important things that are very linked in private debt. Uh, diversification is is hyper important. This is an absolute returning asset class. Uh, unlike private equity, where there's there's uh, obviously a lot more upside, um, uh, so it's easier um, to, uh, as I like to say, paper over the roadkill in private equity. You can't do that in, in private debt. There's just no way. If you lose money, um, it, it really hurts you as 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 an investor and as a lender. So diversification is one way to inoculate yourself against that type of uh, that type of risk. Uh, you know, first and foremost. On the flexibility side, I'd say a, a couple of things. Uh, the market will, and we see it playing out right now, the market is, um, and companies have very different capital needs in this environment. Um, and that could be because their own lenders are having issues. Uh, perhaps uh, the banks are tightening up on their eligibility criteria. There's a whole, you know, sort of, uh, uh, the, the secondary market, or you know, primary and secondary markets in leveraged loan markets have seized up, and you're seeing actually now, um, and we saw this in the in the gilt market, uh, where pension funds were 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 forced to liquidate double B uh, double B uh, uh, bonds and debt. So you you have a number of things going on. So if you are a manager that has the flexibility to be in the in the traditional private debt market, but you also have the skills, the capabilities, uh, the origination to go into the liquid and semi-liquid markets, having that flexibility and being able to pivot and, and think about you know, relative risk return is really very interesting at this, at this point in time in the market. If you're a, um, uh, a fund that has a you know, one strategy, I think in this market you probably don't do as well as if you your your organization your your vehicle your firm is playing across the credit spectrum and I think that's where the the flexibility comes in is to be able to not just look at one stream of transactions and investments but multiple streams because what we're seeing now is the the dislocation in the credit markets a lot of different types of of opportunities are coming out coming out of it ones that frankly i mean some some would not have predicted at the start of the year and the guilt market um and what happened with the uk pension plans and their their need to uh liquidate um assets quickly um is a, is a great example of that the underlying those underlying issuers will probably pay off all their debt 
Um, you know, if you buy and hold it, but obviously the pension funds who owned it needed to liquidate it. And for private credit managers that had that capability to go in and, and buy, you know, double Bs in the 60s and 70s, um, I think they'll be very happy, um, you know, with those investments over the course of the next couple of years. Yeah, that's really interesting, David. That's kind of a very dynamic mark over the past year. Um, I'd like to Take uh, like to shift over to Amric at this point. And Amric, um, I think of all the nine pieces we have in this document this year, yours probably was the most lyrical of all of them. Um, uh, yeah. Not to steal your thunder, but Amric did this very interesting piece on tying diamonds into uh, an analogy with uh, infrastructure. And I thought that there are some really interesting connections there. So can you kind of lay that out for us? Sure. Thanks, Billy. And uh, I think that's um, amongst an incredible amount of luck. The key to my longevity is the the ability to tell a, a good story now and then. Um, but you're right. Um, for for investors that have allocated to uh, infrastructure, certainly post financial crisis, the asset class has been one of the, if not the jewel in their in their portfolios or in their crowns, because um, it has delivered on, generally delivered on expectations um, from an investment perspective uh, in terms of lower volatility, but also uh, consistency of uh, long-term equity-like return, lower correlation to other asset classes, um, and also broader macroeconomic and geopolitical factors. I mean, we've been through a very tumultuous three-year, four-year period um, but um, the the number of actually impaired or even um, kind of default related assets in the asset class has been surprisingly low, very, very low indeed. Now, um, we mustn't forget that that has in part been supported by other factors such as stimulus and, and so on. But I think it points to the fundamental appealing characteristics of the asset class. You know, the essentiality um, of these businesses and these services and their ability to um, continue to generate return under different environments. Um, but, and there always is a but, um, again, post-financial crisis, um, all alternative asset classes have seen uh, tremendous growth and success. And even within that context, infrastructure is a bit of an outlier. It has gone from being an asset class that wasn't really credited with being an asset class about 15 years ago to being uh, very much the darling of private markets. That brings advantages and, and some challenges as well. And there is a risk that um, the definitions of what constitutes infrastructure have been stretched. And that there are certain types of assets and businesses that are now in portfolios that are labeled as infrastructure, but actually aren't really infrastructure. And we are already in a another period. It sounds uh, remarkable to say, but yet another extraordinary period where we've gone from a global pandemic and now straight into a, a highly inflationary and um, rate uh, uh, tightening process globally. Um, and I think that there may there may actually be some fallout from this um, for for infrastructure too. Given kind of the, the the 
situation with the inflationary environment, do you how do you view it in terms of geographies or subsectors within infrastructure? Are there particular areas that are are better to be positioned in, or are they or is there concerns about particular areas? What what which are what are your thoughts there? So I think with the with where inflation currently is and um, is predicted to be. Uh, so in the UK, for example, it's just topped out at over 11%. Uh, in the US, I believe it's around about 8%. So incredibly high relative to historic standards. That would suggest that um, assets that really have that true monopolistic positioning, that true pricing power, are the ones that you really want to have within your portfolio and be exposed to. But unfortunately, it's even more complicated than that, because even those types of assets in this uh, above average inflationary environment may face some unexpected challenges. So um, to to give you um, a simple but everyday example, if we think about our um, our utilities that we use, um, water, gas, and electricity, in some markets, these utilities are regulated. So that brings potential challenges. You, know, you always have regulatory risk, but it's, it's also a, a benefit because you are allowed to earn a real rate of return over time in order for providing that service to society. So in theory, that would be a great place to be in the current environment. But the question is, if inflation is running at 8%, 9%, 10%, 11%, how do you actually pass that on to consumers? What are the uh, societal impacts of trying to do that? What are the potential negative political impacts of doing that or regulatory impacts of doing that? So this is a uh, challenge that a lot of infrastructure owners haven't had to face, certainly for the past decade or longer. And it's going to be um, it's going to be difficult potentially um, to manage that situation, particularly given that at the same time their own costs will be going up at inflation. Uh, they may be going a bit higher than inflation if they're facing supply chain issues or otherwise, um, just given uh, global geopolitics at the moment. Um, and as David mentioned just now on the the debt side of things, they're facing uh, higher interest rate costs as well. So it's a delicate balance of trying to pass through inflation, even though technically you might be able to under a regulatory framework um, and uh, paying the bills that are otherwise going up at an inflationary rate or, or at a higher rate. I think it's a really interesting point. And, and who plans for a situation in which, and Europe is a great example of this with the energy costs, who, you know, you, you see where um, a number of governments have thrown caps on the ability of utilities to increase the, the, the rates of charging. And so normally, if inflation was operating within, I don't know, what, whether we call it a normal bound or just like a reasonable bound, you could recapture those costs. But because it went so high so quickly, um, it, it, they're not able to take advantage of that. And there's a, there's a broader related issue here. Billy, which is, um, you know, it's commonly described as a social license to operate, right? So you can you can manage an asset or a business in, in any asset class or in any subsector 
on a purely commercial, purely financial, almost kind of ruthless basis, right? But the uh, the unique position that infrastructure has within economies and societies is that these assets touch our everyday lives. They're essential to the way that we live and work. Um, and you need to have the support and the buy-in of you know, your customers, of your local communities, uh, of your local politician or your national politicians, of the regulator and, and other key folk as well. And if you don't have that, you will find that you will rapidly uh, run into issues that not only affect your reputation, but ultimately your financial position and your returns uh, for your shareholders. Yeah, it is a rather unique position that infrastructure infrastructure has in the environment. Um, I guess we're, we're kind of covered a lot of ground here already. Any final comments for David or Emmerich before we kind of close out the session? Not really, Billy. I just hope that um, the listeners to the podcast and uh, and others uh, enjoy reading the paper. Thanks. And a, a couple of closing comments on the paper. Um, one of the consistent themes across all the sectors was well, two, two consistent themes I can bring up. One was just, I would call it stay the course. Um, you know, this is the time where it's, it gets, there's a lot of uncertainty and it's difficult to stay invested in long-term assets, but it's also a good time to, to, to do so. Um, the other consistent theme in the, the markets or the, the papers about the different markets was the idea of it may be a good time to take advantage of other investors blinking. And if you look back, uh, you know, post-GFC, post the 2001-2002 recession, you see that those are actually very good vintages for across private markets, uh, but it does take a bit of bravery to be making that kind of recommendation of long-term assets in, in an uncertain, a very highly uncertain situation. So th those were consistent themes throughout the uh, uh, the, the different sections. Uh, thank you for listening. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe. To find out more, reach out to your local Mercer representative or email at ctci at mercer.com. Again, ctci at mercer.com. Thank you for joining us and hope you all have a good day. Take care.